This week on Writers, Inc. For me, I've always looked at crime novels as a prism to look at uh, wider uh, and more universal issues. I never think of my books as crime novels. I think of them as novels that happen to be about crime. And so this seemed like this sort of uh, missing woman story uh, seemed like an interesting way to deal with this whole topic of losing people as we grow and how how we adjust to the absence uh, that that growing up involves and, and saying goodbye to people and and learning to live with their with the void that they leave behind. J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and a panel of industry powerhouses as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where do they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets. What does it take to consistently top the bestseller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hi, it's Christine Daigle. Patrick O'Donnell. J.P. Reinflush. Kevin Tomlinson. Hey, and J.D. Barker, welcome to Writer's Inc. So I'm, I'm starting this week with a public service announcement. So I, I get a lot of emails from either people that I've met at conferences or, you know, other authors or friends of authors or people that just listen to the show or whatever um, that say something like, you know, I'm thinking about publishing my book with ABC Corp. What do you think of them? Um, here's my general thought, because um, there's, there's something going on out there that I think a lot of new authors haven't quite picked up on. But there used to be this thing called Vanity Press. Um, it was basically companies that would charge an author to publish their book. So you would give them $500, $1,000, whatever. They would create your cover. They might edit your book for you. Um, they will then ask you to buy a couple hundred copies of your book when it eventually comes out. Um, but they'll, they basically su supplement a part of the process by helping you get it out there into the public. But in the end, they're, they're for profit. And that profit largely comes from the authors that are, that are walking through their door. Um, with the advent of indie publishing, a lot of them have vanished because a lot of you know authors can obviously publish on their own. What I've been seeing lately is a hybrid model coming out. So the few vanity presses that actually survived that era have kind of rebranded themselves as a small press, um, but they're still doing a lot of the same things. And you know they they might have a web page that says you know publishing packages, and you know you can buy a particular package, um, and they'll create your cover for you, help you with editing, you know help you get the book in stores, but they'll take fifty percent of your royalties or whatever it might be. Please review all of this stuff before you sign on the dotted line with, with anybody, any, any publisher. I don't care if it's Random House or it's you know somebody you've never heard of before, but look at absolutely everything. I mean, what I typically tell people if they got an offer from a publisher in front of them, is it for life-changing money? Are, are they going to basically either hand you a check that is going to change your life or are they doing something that you are just 100% unwilling to do? If, if you don't want to take the time to create your own covers or edit and do those types of things, that's totally fine. You know, you can pay somebody else to do that. Um, but just make sure you know what you're, you're getting into, because a lot of the ones that are out there, they will do the absolute bare minimum. They will charge you uh, for, for performing those services. And then in the end, they'll, they'll take a percentage of your royalties for, you know, it could be a couple of years. It could be indefinitely, depending on the contract. Um, but just look at that. I, I just I, I hear from so many people that just don't examine the facts. Um, and, and a lot of times it's just because they want to be able to say, hey, I've got a publisher. It's so and so, you know, I'm not indie published. I've got a publisher. And, you know, in the end, that's that's really not the case. That's not what you've got. I, I think a good rule of thumb is uh, don't give money to anybody unless you sought them out. Like if they came to you, mm -hmm. don't give them money. If you went looking for someone to perform a specific service, it's okay to pay them money. Yeah. A, a simple way, honestly, to find them is just take the name of the company, go on Google and just add the word scam. And then yeah. just hit enter yeah. and see mm -hmm. what comes up. And if the first couple listings are, you know, obviously a problem, then you know what you're dealing with. Do that with your own name every now and then. I, that's that's always fun. <laughs> Kevin Tomlinson scam. Look it up now and see what. I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> I don't Kevin, know if there is. I may regret telling people to do that. Actually, <laughs> Kevin, you just trained the AI gods, so now ChatGTV is going to be doing that. Yep. Yep. Way to go, Kevin. Oh, perfect. <laughs> oh man. All right, JP. What's in the news? All right. So first up in the news, bookshop.org is going to be selling ebooks and also publishing first print title. So bookshop.org is an online bookseller uh, who is very 
tied to independent booksellers. And by the end of 2023, they plan to sell ebooks, which is a huge shift from the physical books that they've been doing currently. They're also going to be developing a new e-reader app uh, that will be launched at a later date. And uh, the whole intent is to get independent bookstores a way to sell ebooks that capture sales that they're losing to Amazon. So I wanted to toss this out there. I know, JD, you sent this to me as well uh, earlier, but this is super exciting for me because of my uh, soapbox about local bookstores. Uh, so I immediately sent this to my local bookstore uh, to be like, hey, look at this awesome news. But I'm curious what <laughs> your guys' thoughts are. Yeah, my my biggest thing when I saw this is is how are they going to overcome the the hurdle that is Kindle? You know, like there's there's already you know Kindle is out there, Kobo is you know a close second. I mean, Kobo is very large actually outside of the U.S. Um, we don't we don't use it a whole lot here, but you leave the country and it's it's big, especially overseas and stuff. Um, you know, so like those behemoths already exist, and that that's a that's a tough ask of of any company. Um, but they do have a lot of people behind them, a lot of good people, a lot of a lot of companies. Like I could see them possibly doing it if somebody is going to do this. You know, I've always thought maybe it's going to be Google or somebody else but they've they've got a shot i we i'm just gonna throw it in there that if anyone from bookshop is listening draft digital would love to chat with you about how we can help you do this because we can help you <laughs> overcome those behemoths we've reached out to them several times that and uh you know it's been slow responses but we can help them do this. <laughs> You're such a helper, Kevin. They I should am. take advantage of that for sure. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that work at Bookshop. Maybe I can put somebody in touch with you. It's, it's actually a, touch, yeah. it's a very small staff. Like a lot of, you know, the people that are working there all have, wear a lot of different hats and that could be what's going on. Yeah, that's what we figure. And we've, you know, it was, it's mostly been uh, Mark Leslie Lefebvre, uh, formerly of Kobo. Now he's D to D Mark, but he reaches out and every, I think he's got a someone he's chatting with, but yeah, we would love to help out with that. Cause I, I we, we see what that's doing for those bookshops and we want to support local bookstores too. That, that's a big thing for us. Cool. Next up on the list, uh, BookBug Partners had a webinar uh, talking about the principles uh, for success on BookBub. Uh, so they talked in during this webinar about testing and targeting being essential for success as BookBub ads. Um, every book being unique um, and you know, one thing that may work for one author may not work for the other, but they really kind of pushed on this whole testing your ad being critical. Uh, a couple other things that they noted, um, BookBub readers are power readers uh, who look for new books to buy at a discount. Uh, so advertising the first book in series at a low price or free uh, is also extremely helpful. Creating uh, the best ad um, is something where you want to clearly signal the genre and mood, highlighting a deal um, in price. And then new authors typically make their mistakes when targeting the ad. So here was a big one for some people who may not know this, but author targeting is almost always more effective than category targeting. Yeah. Uh, so although you want to avoid the most popular authors for the ad, uh, you might want to start looking at choosing authors who may have a large and engaged audiences on BookBub to use as your targeting. So have you guys used BookBub ads and how is that working out for you? Yeah, I've used them. Uh, they've lost some effectiveness, in my opinion, over the past I'd say in the past two years, they've, they've, they've really sort of dwindled in effectiveness, but there's still a pretty good way to reach uh, a wide audience of readers and the whole targeting thing. Like it's crazy. I can't even target myself anymore. Uh, cause so many people have, uh, used me as their target that it's really expensive for me to use myself as a target now. <laughs> uh, but you, you want to look for authors that are in the same genre that have that, that big group of followers. And you can see their followers. You can see who's, you know, how many followers they mm -hmm. have. And I don't even really have that many. <laughs> I, I, I've used them before. My, my biggest hurdle is I can't get my prices low enough um, with a lot of my titles being traditionally published. You know, I, I'm yeah. lucky if I can get them down to two ninety nine, and that's just, that's not cheap enough really for, you know, these people to take advantage of it. Um, I noticed two problems with it back when I, when I did use it and I was looking at, you know, from every different angle, um, people that receive BookBub in Gmail, it, the, the ad at the bottom gets cut off. 
Um, so unless they actually open the email, you know, completely and basically like in another window or it, a lot of times they don't even see that ad that's down at the bottom. Um, and it's something else that I've noticed just over the years and doing this, I think a lot of authors, especially when we're first starting out, you know, we kind of pick our wish list of targets, you know, like I, you know, I want to follow or I want to target Stephen King, James Patterson. It's always the same names. Like everybody, you know, th these are yeah. the biggest authors. These, these are the ones I'm going to go after. Um, but it's not necessarily who you should go after. Cause first of all, like Kevin said, they can be very expensive because everybody is targeting them. Um, but a lot of times they're really not comps. I've, I've had so many, you know, first time authors hand me their book and tell me, Oh, I, you know, it's like Stephen King. It's like Dean Koontz. It's like, you know, this, like this person, this person, and I'll pick it up and read it. And it, it's nothing like any of those. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, but what I have found over the years, if you go to Amazon and just look at, you know, where they list similar authors to you, you know, based on buying patterns, that's really who you should be targeting because um, yeah. that algorithm actually sees the real activity of people buying books on Amazon. So if it lists like five different authors you've never heard of, or even if they are names that aren't on your actual radar, those are most likely the people you should be targeting in Facebook ads and Amazon ads and BookBub ads or, or whatever. Yeah. What do you think about... Um using it for a first book, do you think that that is worthwhile or do you think you have to have a series to make a BookBub ad worthwhile? Personally, I don't think it's worthwhile to, to do a, a BookBub ad for a first instance, you know, the first and only book. Um, mm -hmm. It can be if you're, if you're willing to do, if your idea is to get followers and you're willing to put that book up for free, um, even maybe 99 cents, but free is much more effective uh, than it's a, it, it would be great. Like I would use it for platform building, but uh, there no one's really willing to take a chance on, uh, in my opinion, no one's really willing to take a chance on a single book author, you know, and pay anything that makes the ad, the cost of the ad worthwhile. But if you're if it's part of your platform building, part of building up your audience uh, mailing list, that that's that's a good way to go. For me personally, I've been just trying to create a brand in general. So my, my name now appears you know, with the same look and feel. It's a, a trademark version of my name on every book. So I'm basically trying to create an environment where people think of my you know, like all of my books almost as if they're a series, um, which, which seems to be working um, because most of my books are one-offs. The only series that I have is traditionally published. So I can't really do a whole lot of this kind of stuff with it. I, I can't discount the first one. Um, yeah. But I, I, I'm at the point now where I've got enough books out there where I can rope somebody in on a standalone and I, I, I know they're buying the other books because I can see it in the reviews. You know, I read this book and now I bought this one and like they, they talk yeah. about that. Um, but yeah, if you only have like one book out there, like most, most of this advertising just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I agree with that. Cool. And as a last bit of news, I tried to be light on the AI this week, even though many of the <laughs> forthcoming weeks will be heavy on AI. But um, this was an update that I thought because of the previous discussions we had was worth noting. And that was that audiobook narrators fear Apple use their voices to train AI. Uh, we previously talked about some of the clauses in Findaway Voices. Uh, and the groups that represent uh, narrators and other authors uh, have decided that the choices that Findaway had in their uh, clauses should be immediately halted, and they have been. Uh, so a lot of the narrators were outraged by the fact that these contracts were happening between authors and leading audiobook distributor Findaway Voices uh, gave Apple the right to use audiobook files for machine learning and training models. Uh, so because this was a previous discussion we had, um, and because of the fact that it impacts not only the authors who upload those audiobooks into Findaway, but also the narrators who didn't really have a say as to uh, how their voices are being used. Uh, I just wanted to pop in this update from uh, the SAG-AFTRA, which is the group that represents artists and other creatives. Yeah, just to add on for the, the people that aren't familiar with this or didn't hear us the first time around. So in the, there's two agreements that you basically sign as an author with Findaway Voices. One of them is the the title agreement. I, I forget what the actual, what it's called. Um, and the second one is the distribution agreement. Um, that's the one that actually contains the clause and the clause basically allows them to put your, your content out there for AI training through Apple. Um, you can turn that off, but you basically have to write to them separately and tell them you don't want to participate. You want to opt out of that. Um, 
you know, most authors had no clue that that was in there. You know, I'm not quite sure how that works because you don't really see it until you approve it. So, you know, even if there's a one week window or whatever, where you're basically allowing that before they turn it off, you know, I don't know how quickly these, these platforms were trained, but the bottom line is the author was the one has, who has you know, currently the ability to turn that off. The narrator had zero saying that they, they didn't see this anywhere. Um, and they're the ones who really get hurt the most. Um, so I'm glad they're doing something about it. it. It was just sneaky, shouldn't have been there in the first place. And I hope this sets a precedence and they just avoid doing it well i believe all this is going to be hammered out in court i mean that's the long and the short of all this stuff with all the ai with all of this yeah this is a bold new world and most of this if not all this is going to have to be hammered out in different court cases that's just the way it's going to be that's true uh i i, I think the problem is that the language is unclear because what what exactly do they mean by training? What do they mean by machine learning? What you know? What do these yeah. terms actually mean? That that term was in that contract is at least as far back as 2019. Um, and nobody was even considering AI narration really uh, at that point. I mean, people were, but no one was talking about it. And the training, and I've talked to folks. I know I know some of what happened. I can't reveal some things, but I mean, uh, you know, it, it wasn't. No one stole anyone's voice. No one, no one, you know, they are using licensed voices people that they licensed from the, uh, the original people. Uh, those are all above board, all legal, all taken care of. And, uh, then they, they used the, the AI, uh, trained on all these voices. If they did anything at all, it was to, you know, get cadence and rhythm and intonation and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, I from what I understand, I don't can't speak for Apple, but I know that certain groups like Google and others actually did things like use uh, YouTube videos for this, and without necessarily even making it part of the terms of service. So, it's it to me, it's I I don't know I I'm alone in this, but I feel like it's a nothing burger. I feel like there's <laughs> there's no real problem, uh, but you know that's the way these things go. We're gonna see the whole thing evolve over the next few years. Maybe I will be proven dramatically wrong uh, and that's fine. I, I think a lot of people really are scared of the unknown. They just, they don't sure. know where this could go. Um, and you know, I mean, yeah. when I, when I read that clause, that's, that's my, my biggest fear because it's just, it's written with such ambiguity. And that is the problem. That's right. Too but open. it's written by a lawyer, yeah. you know, yeah. lawyers can't say yes without four pages, you know, of, of text. <laughs> Very true. This episode is brought to you by our amazing sponsor, LaterPress. LaterPress is a platform built to help authors declare independence. It lets authors create digital books and sell them directly to readers through a branded website. LaterPress is free to publish on and doesn't take any commission on direct sales. It's one of the most effective ways readers can directly support authors they love. Get started today at LaterPress.com. So JD, who is up this week? This week, we've got William Landy coming on. He's the New York Times bestselling author of Defending Jacob, which was made into a, C a TV series for Apple Plus uh, starring Chris Evans. His latest book is called All That Is Mine I Carry With Me and releases on uh, March 7th. Uh, here he is, William Landy. You have a new book out, All That Is Mine I Carry With Me. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, the book is about, it It overlaps Defending Jacob in theme a little bit in the sense that it's, uh, again, about a suburban family in Newton, Massachusetts, which is the town where I live, not coincidentally. Um, and it involves a family in which the uh, mother disappears in November of 1975. The father in this family is a criminal defense lawyer. And he is uh, immediately the prime suspect, uh, but there's no evidence against him and there's no witnesses. Uh, and so the uh, the case withers and uh, uh, the children uh, and the remaining, uh, the, the, the children essentially, uh, and aunts and uncles as well, I should say, uh, are left to live with the weight of suspicion over the ensuing decades it's a book that covers a very long time span uh, and involves uh, the three children in this family, as well as a, a constellation of aunts and uncles, and is told uh, from varying points of view in, a, in an effort to capture the, the different experiences of the people who are involved in something like this. 
Yeah. And that was really interesting to me. Your novel has four different points of view from four different characters, but they're in blocks. They're not interspersed the way that you sometimes see them. Um, reminded me a little bit of the structure of the movie, The Rashomon. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about why you chose this structure? It, I was very much influenced by Ian McEwan's novel, Atonement, which is told with a similar structure. And like Rashomon, which is kind of the uh, or reference uh, to these kind of stories, uh, it's an attempt to capture the uh, differing experiences of individual uh, temperaments uh, who who go through this uh, and how how it's perceived differently uh, from different by different people and also at different ages of of your life. Uh, for me, I've always looked at crime novels as a prism to look at uh, wider uh, and more universal issues. I never think of my books as crime novels. I think of them as novels that happen to be about crime. And so this seemed like this sort of uh, missing woman story uh, seemed like an interesting way to deal with this whole topic of losing people as we grow and how how we adjust to the absence uh, that that growing up involves and, and saying goodbye to people and and learning to live with their with the void that they leave behind. And so uh, that was a part of it. The other uh, part that interested me in terms of using this sort of structural complexity, uh, both in terms of telling it in chunks and in terms of telling it uh, from different uh, points of view and uh, different periods of time, is that I feel like it involves the reader in a more active way when you essentially give them puzzle pieces and allow them to make connections and put things together. Uh, one of the great uh, joys of atonement and one of the great joys of my reading life uh, all time uh, is when you reach the end of that novel and the pieces fall into place and you realize what you've been reading and it recasts the entire experience of reading that novel. And I, it was those last few pages of atonement were one of the great reading experiences of my life. And I, I just remember that the hair on my arm standing on end and, and the idea of recreating that experience uh, for readers, that kind of electric moment uh, that books rarely do, but all readers remember when it happens, uh, just seemed uh, like a uh, a magical thing to to try. I think especially now that we all live in in a digital age uh, when we're just deluged with information and text, and we've kind of learned to keep it at arm's length. Uh, we've learned to keep our our bullshit filters on eleven at all times because there's so much dishonest information coming at us. It's very hard, I think, for a modern reader to suspend disbelief uh, in the classic phrase. And so I wanted to present a text that met the reader where she is uh, with the experience of, uh, being at the center of of these multiple uh, media fire hoses, and, and and with her filters up, uh, and allowing her to grapple with the text uh, in a more active way than simply reading from page one to to page last. This book really does require you to sit up straight and put put some pieces together yourself. And when the reader is engaged actively that way, I. Feel I hope uh, that it will uh, it will become one of those uh, uh, unforgettable experiences where you feel a part of the story in a way that you don't uh, in, in most cases. Yeah, I definitely think you achieved that. I don't want to spoil anything, so I'm not going to give anything away. It's a um, hard book to talk about without spoilers. Yeah, really like, I don't want to because you think it's one thing and then it's another's perspective and it's something else. And it is definitely a book when you're done with it, you just don't put it down and forget about it. You're really left thinking about it and what it all means. Um, I know a lot of time readers get something very different thematically out of it that what authors intended. But I just wondered if you had thought about 
the nature of truth, about investigating the philosophy of justice, or what was kind of your bigger picture when you were writing this story? I think those things are all implicated and they're all there uh, to some extent. I, I'm very wary about interpreting it for readers. I want them to uh, have the experience, especially in a book like this, where uh, the shifting perspectives and the effort to really get into uh, the different characters' heads uh, imposes an obligation not to judge the differing attitudes of people who may disagree uh, about how different uh, crimes and criminals should be treated. Uh, and this is a case where the uh, the case really does uh, polarize people in this family and drive them apart. Uh, in particular, there are three children in this family who are left behind by this woman's disappearance. There's a, a, an older brother named Alex, who's, who's significantly older than his two younger sibs. Uh, and, and the two younger ones are, are Jeff and, and Miranda, who are very tight as brother and sister, uh, but not alike, necessarily. Uh, and so these three different personalities respond to this incident in in different ways. Uh, and so I don't want to step on their uh, opinions uh, about about how to how to feel about what they see. But I will say that as a from a legal perspective, uh, and I'm I'm a former prosecutor, so I always think about it as as how this case would present in court. Uh, it does raise all sorts of interesting questions about sufficiency of proof, uh, uh, and also about what we mean by guilt. Uh, there, there are questions that arise in this book about who is guilty of what, and as you progress in life, as the suspect progresses in life, uh, is it possible for suspects to change, to become less guilty? Are there crimes that are unforgivable that the staleness of the investigation, the intervening decades, uh, moderates their criminality in some way and makes them uh, makes makes them different in our eyes, uh, makes them uh, less guilty. Uh, and I don't know; those are moral judgments; they're not legal ones. And yeah. and that's a wonderful thing about about a book like this is that it transcends. Uh, the easy uh, labels that we tend to assign to criminals, uh, and we tend to uh, monsterize our criminals because it it makes it easier for us to to put them in a category and also to differentiate them from ourselves. Uh, and in this case, everyone, uh, the victims and and the missing woman and the the primary suspect are all uh, given their depth and complexity as humans. And so it's very difficult, I hope, uh, to write them off uh, as one-dimensional uh, monsters. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious if you have a character that you're excited for readers to read about and why that would be. <laughs> um, I I don't pick and choose that way. <laughs> um, there is, uh, and this isn't giving anything away because it's plain from the from the first page, one of the characters is a, a narrator, a, an author, a novelist, uh, whose resemblance to me is more than passing. <laughs> so I suppose I ought to feel uh, closest to him. Uh, but one of the nice things about being a novelist is that you get to try on uh, the masks of other people. And so it's interesting. I don't necessarily feel closer to that novelist character than I do to uh, some of the other uh, speakers uh, who who populate this book, uh, but I but I will say uh, uh, that that uh, until the very end, until the last edit, the name of that novelist narrator character was Bill Landay, <laughs> and and so <laughs> to for me to to sit here and tell you that uh, that he's no closer uh, to my heart than any other is. Uh, well, it may say something about me and my <laughs> self-loathing. <laughs> well, that's interesting because he starts off with writer's block. So do you want to tell me about that and where that came from? Is that a personal experience? It Well, it's very definitely a personal experience. And I, I don't know if uh, if 
writers, if all writers would assign that term to it necessarily, but all writers know the struggle uh, of trying to get a book going and push through uh, various uh, uh, obstacles and slowdowns and resistance and whatever you want to call it. Um, and in this case in particular, my last book, uh, Defending Jacob, came out 10 years ago. And I didn't want to ignore that. I wanted to uh, address that head on and use the delay uh, in some ways and incorporate it into the story. Uh, one of the uh, things that that I was trying to do with Defending Jacob that I went back to the well uh, again with this book was to try and make it uh, as authentic to me as I could. Uh, going into Defending Jacob, I remember um, I had a meeting with my editor and I had had Defending Jacob was my third book. And I had had two books uh, that were the two previous books were more traditional crime novels. Uh, traditional in the sense that they were more hard-boiled and involved street crime, essentially. And I remember proposing a third similar book to my editor, and she told me to come down and, and we could talk about it. And I knew right away I was in trouble because if it's good news, you don't need to make a, take a train down to New York to be told how great you are. Right. So I go down there and she told me that you could go ahead and write another traditional crime novel, uh, even though I never thought of them as traditional crime novels, they, they're told in a very similar voice. Uh, but her, her, her comment was that for a mainstream reader, for a, a book that is pitched that way and is about that sort of subject, um, they simply won't consider it. Uh, and so if you wanted to reach a broader readership, uh, you needed to uh, tell a different sort of story. And so the focus heading into Defending Jacob was trying to make it as to go the opposite way, uh, to, to uh, be bizarro George Costanza and do the opposite of what I had done before. Uh, and, and that meant making things as close to my own life as possible and as close to what felt authentic to me, uh, rather than imagining uh, what, what, a, what a, you know, noir crime novel would sound like. And so in Defending Jacob, uh, I wound up setting the book in the town where I actually live uh, and positing a family that overlaps my own in a lot of ways. Uh, and so in this case, I wanted to continue that uh, because I do feel that when you write from a place that is uh, personally relevant to you, there is a kind of honesty in the writing that is hard to replicate if you feel like you're faking it or if you feel like you're trying to write to a genre or, or copy someone else's template in any way. Uh, and so that was the, the focus here. And so addressing the long silence after my uh, last novel uh, seemed essential to me because when you go, uh, I don't have a day job. <laughs> so when you go 10 years between a book, uh, that's obviously a uh, transformative, difficult experience. And I thought it would be dishonest for me not to treat that in some way. And I also felt like, again, you have to, especially in this day and age where readers know so much and can find so much out about you, uh, it would have been the elephant in the room for readers who open up this book after you know having read Defending Jacob you know, five or eight or 10 years ago, that question of where has this guy been? Uh, what happened would be something that that needed to be addressed if only to eliminate that doubt. So I thought that I could use that uh, to my advantage. And it plays into the opening act of this book where the premise is that the novelist character has been blocked and is presented with the idea of telling this story about an old friend of his, a childhood friend uh, whose family experienced this, uh, uh, this crime, this, this, uh, this mysterious disappearance of uh, uh, this, this then, then the boy's mother. Uh, and so that is the lead-in uh, that 
sort of has this uh, authentic, uh, genuine uh, feeling to it. And, and I don't I don't claim to have represent, uh, uh, originated that. Uh, but some of my favorite books start with similar sorts of uh, devices. Uh, there's, you know, Nick Carraway is obviously the the most famous example, but I also think of The Razor's Edge, uh, which was one of my uh, favorite books as a teen. Uh, and and it's just such a uh, enchanting, seductive entry into a book for someone to uh, break that fourth wall and turn and address the reader directly and say, I'm going to tell you a story uh, that I experienced. Uh, come and listen to what happened to me. And it's so disarming because it it uh, undermines the, the, the pretense, the conscious pretense that we all bring to a novel. Uh, and as I say, I do feel that readers are uh, on guard now in a way that they haven't always been. Uh, and this uh, is a sort of jujitsu approach to that. This takes their cynicism, uh, their guardedness, and subverts it. Uh, right away by saying, look, here I am, unmasked. Uh, let me tell you a story that really happened. And and that voice leads you in to, to the story, which is also why it uh, becomes so interesting uh, as you progress through the book and the voices and perspectives uh, begin to multiply and complicate. Yeah, I find that interesting because I think it's true. Um just with the way things are that people can be very cynical. And um, I think a human connection is so important to get people's interest now. And I'm really fascinated by that because in your um, bio, you say that you have a philosophy that the author's place is off stage, hide your life and disappear. So how do you kind of reconcile those two <laughs> things together? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm a writer. I can I can change my mind anytime. Uh, the other True. thing is that you um the fact that even if I had put in a, a character in this book and called him Bill Lande, he wouldn't be me. Uh, any more than Philip Roth putting a, a character into his book called Philip Roth would be the real thing. Um, once you open a book. Uh, that says that's in the fiction aisle. Uh, you, you are free. <laughs> You're free to do and say anything. Uh, so I don't feel bound by uh, honesty or consistency. Yeah. So you said no writer of any quality can base his novels on fact. Do you want to tell me what you mean by that? <laughs> <laughs> well, the world is just so messy and experience is so shapeless uh, and, and undramatic. It has to be refined. Uh, you know, people are always asking me, um, you know, do you are you writing about cases that you were involved in when you were a D.A.? And I kind of want to take them into any local courthouse and have them sit behind the DA and watch what his day is actually like. It's it's mostly mundane and paperwork and waiting for judges to arrive. And it's uh, it all all art is, is is filtered in one way or another and shaped. It's all dishonest, uh, but it has to be because you are trying to uh, elevate and concentrate the experience of real life, which is so, it's too much. It's too much and it's too shapeless. So, uh, yeah, so I don't, uh, I don't try to capture reality too closely. Nice. So I want to ask you uh, a couple more questions just about author life in general. What do you think mm -hmm. authors worry too much about that they shouldn't? How they'll be received. And by that, I mean, how they'll be received by reviewers and by readers, by uh, Amazon reviews, uh, for which any the only credential you need to leave a review on Amazon is is to own a a, a cell phone, <laughs> um, and so you you can't take it too seriously. I always feel that the only audience that I'm ever trying to please is myself. And that is a much harder thing to do uh, uh, than to please a reviewer, uh, in my case. 
Um, and so I'm always dissatisfied with my books and the fact that I am dissatisfied with my books and not looking to reviewers or the outside world for reinforcement uh, in a way immunizes me against the uh, pain of, of reading uh, negative reviews, which I don't I don't read uh, really. I mean, uh, I I often give in to curiosity and see uh, see what people are saying, but I never take it to heart. Um, and it's very rare that you hear a criticism of some aspect of your book that you didn't uh, that you weren't aware of uh, previously. Um, generally, the the flaws in your book, the bits that are held together with scotch tape and <laughs> chicken wire uh, are things that you are painfully aware of and have wrestled with and either couldn't fix or needed to leave as is because you were trying to serve some other purpose. It's just you're building a very complex machine and sometimes you need to compromise on one uh, uh, aspect of the book in order to serve another. Um, so, so that's the one thing I, I would say to, to writers is don't, don't, uh, allow other people to be the judges of your success or not. Uh, to me, when I think about it, the, the whole public aspect of a book's life is, is not where my focus is. Um, generally when I think of readers, I'm thinking of an individual reader somewhere. And that's the beauty of a book. It's a unique art form in the sense that it's consumed in almost complete privacy. Uh, even if you're reading a novel in a crowded subway car, uh, your experience of the novel is completely internal to you. Uh, novels come to you as uh, as a script, as as words on a page, and you bring to it your skill as a reader to lift those words off the page and perform the novel for yourself. And so your experience of it is necessarily an interior experience in your head. And it's a very intimate way to uh, to meet a story and to, to meet a novelist. Uh, and it's why uh, when people, uh, when I meet readers, they often feel uh, as they feel as if they are meeting someone that they know, because in a sense they do. Uh, they have heard my voice more intimately uh, than they will hear anyone else's because my voice has been in their head. And so that I think is the sort of one-to-one -one communion between writer and reader that is the real, uh, the real power of the art form and is the real goal of, of novel writing and novel reading. I agree. So I'm curious with that kind of philosophy, you write it for yourself. Uh, what are you excited to explore in your fiction that maybe you haven't done yet that you would like to? I don't tend to think in terms in in terms of uh, uh, long-term plans that way. I tend to put everything into the project that's in front of me. Um, and right now I'm just grappling with the next project and trying to uh, figure out what that next book is um i think it's i think that's the way most artists progress uh writers uh and any other sort of artist as well you go project to project and you try to work at the extreme outer limit of your talent and do the best you can with the tools you have at that moment tools being both your own skill and the inspiration or and then the uh, the internal uh substantive merits of the project you're working on uh all of which hopefully will come together to make something special uh but the arc of your career and the long-term themes that connect book to book or project to project uh should only be apparent at the end and only to others uh really i don't i'm not one of those programmatic uh, writers who uh, is writing variations on the same theme over and over again. I do feel that one thing that marks 
writers that I particularly enjoy is that their books are unpredictable in a way. There is a through line always. There's always the same hand behind it. And and when you find a writer whose style and voice you like, uh, you come to trust them and you come to know them. And what I would like my readers to bring to my books is that sort of uh, faith and confidence that when they open a book uh, uh, by Bill Landay, they're they know they don't know what the book is going to be exactly, but you have accumulated uh, enough trust that 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 you're willing to go along uh, and and see where this guy takes you. And there are we all have writers like that who we open a book with a level of trust that accrues to to each novel and that that. Uh, increments, book after book after book. Uh, and it's just a, a wonderful uh, presence in your life when you have a writer like that. Um, so that's that's sort of how I, I think of it. Uh, I wish I did have a single note that I could just keep hitting, or I wish I had a series. I think of Patrick O'Brien <laughs> in, his, in his series about the British Navy. I kind of feel like wouldn't it be wonderful to not have to reinvent yourself with every book? Uh, the the uh, Trollope famously would finish one of his monstrous Victorian novels and and put down the last page and immediately start writing the next one. And that is uh, <laughs> for every writer who's who's dealt with uh, hesitation at some point. Uh, that's the fantasy of moving from one book to the next seamlessly. Uh, and it, and I've, I have never experienced it in part because I do try to uh, do something different each time, uh, which means you are reinventing whole universes each time. And it, it takes time and it takes struggle. Absolutely. Nice. Okay. I have one final question as we wrap up. Oh, boy. If you could offer one piece of advice to new and aspiring authors, what would it be? It's very difficult because I do feel that the experience of each writer is idiosyncratic and is driven in, in large part by that person's temperament and skill and their interests. Um, so the one thing I suppose I would say as I look back is, is that it's a long road and there's a lot of struggle and there will be uh, dark moments. And the one thing I would say is don't give up because if you have the talent and if you have the uh, drive, then you will improve from book to book. Um, I have uh, published three, now four novels, but I've written more than that. Uh, and that is the goal is to grow. Uh, writing for me started i was a i was a lawyer and it was a nights and weekends sort of thing and i when i left to to start writing uh it was always just to write one book just to see um how far i could go and so in my case i'm still going because i feel like i haven't hit my ceiling yet and and so this lark that i i thought would be a year or two is now into its third decade. Uh, and, and that, I hope, holds some inspiration and some lessons for, for young writers that uh, this is a long road. And, and the goal is to uh, fulfill whatever potential you have. Uh, and that takes, takes a lot. Uh, and you have to be a little lucky as well. And, and, and so stick with it. There's, there's no there's no shortcuts. Bill's book had a really interesting structure. So he had four points of view, but they weren't interspersed. They were all in chunks. So it was, you know, if you're looking at like, say, a four act structure, act one was a point of view and then two and three and four were all different people with no interspersing of those. Um, I thought it was a really interesting structure. I'm wondering if you've played with that before or what your thoughts are on on doing things like that. I honestly loved it, and I, I got a, a crazy early version of the ARC for this, and it, it actually still had Bill Landy in there as the 
you know, the, the narrator name. Um, so like I, I read the first like third of the book and I was trying to figure out whether it was actually a true story or not, because it, the way it's written is so, you know, it, it's from his POV. It's about, a, you know, it's a, an author who is having trouble starting his next book, not sure what he's going to write about. And, it, you know, he touches base with his old friend. And like just the way he goes into it, it feels very much like nonfiction. So like I literally closed the cover on this thing before I even realized that it wasn't, you know, a, a work of nonfiction. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the use of multiple POVs like this, um, you know, a hundred pages to this character, hundred pages to this character. The trick to it is to make sure that, you know, cause they're, they're basically all telling the same story from a different point of view. So, you know, you get to the end of one and then when you start the new one, they're basically going back to the beginning and kind of telling you their side of it. So the trick when you're writing that is to make, not make it repetitive. And I've read so many where authors try to do this and you know, each POV covers, you know, 80% of the exact same thing. And it gets so old and you find yourself skimming and just not wanting to read anymore because you know what's coming. You just your brain craves something new. Uh, but he manages to keep it fresh through the, the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic book. Yeah. What was really uh, nice, too, is that he had each of the narrators were at a different period of time. So it wasn't they were telling a different perspective, but not in the same time period, which I thought was really interesting. And uh, one of the perspectives is the daughter who is telling it as if she was her mother who is dead and what her perspective would be on it. Wow. So just some really interesting narrative devices in this book. So I'll, I'll usually use I'll switch POVs uh, as a way to leave a character in jeopardy. Like, you know, for, for a time mm -hmm. and have them, have them dealing with something off screen while I, you know, maybe I'll loop back and it's not always the same. I don't always tell like the same scene or anything. I usually, am, a lot of times it's something else happening entirely. It's a whole B story or, or something else, uh, related, but, but never quite the same story. Well, see that that works if you do it that way. I, I read one recently, and I don't want to call out the author, but it was basically an all-girls school, and there were four or five you know, central characters, and they basically told literally every scene from all all yeah. each character's point of view. You know, so there would be a party, and I would hear about it from this person, and 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 they basically told the same thing. But you know, the only real difference was one person was standing in this side of the room, and the other one was over here, but they saw the same thing. Um, so that that obviously doesn't work. Um, but yeah, if, if you're, you know, this, this book is definitely the kind where, you know, first of all, you read it because it's extremely entertaining. You close the cover and like you don't know who done it until the very end, um, which is fantastic. But then, you know, you pick it back up again with your highlighter and your pen as a writer and you go, this is what he did right. And I really want to learn how to do <laughs> yeah. this. Yeah, it was a really a great book to study in terms of some interesting point of view and structure. Um, and I liked how we talked about that retroactive aha moment, like when mm -hmm. you get to the end of the book and then you just kind of have this retroactive understanding of everything that comes before that blows your mind. And I really love books that do that. Do you have any thoughts or tips or tricks on how to do that well? Uh, I can tell you it's crazy hard to do um, because you sure. always you, you basically have to piece out information to the reader to make them feel as if they're figuring things out. Um, you want the reader to always think that they're, you know, two or three pages ahead of where the, the actual text is. So they feel like they're the detective and they're, they're doing their job. But then you yank the rug out from underneath them and pull them in a completely different direction. Um, for me, doing that is actually I did it in the 4MK series and I, I pants those. And a lot of it was because I didn't know the story, you know, where it was going, you know, so I would throw in this crazy twist and have no clue, you know, what it meant to the actual storyline or how my character was going to get out of it. I just had to find a way to get out of it. Um, but that, that's very difficult to do. I think it, you know, for the most part, if somebody's going to try and do that straight off the bat, they've never done it before. It's probably best to try and plot it out. Well, you all had David Ellis on the show a while back and he had his book look closer and it was very, very similar. And he was explaining, you know, he had the different point of views. And then at the very, you didn't know who did it till the very end. But he said, you know, the important thing is, you know, leave the breadcrumbs, like what you said, JT, you know, have your reader, yeah. you know, try to figure it out and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, you can't just be like, hey, some Martians came and did it in the middle of the night and then just like leave. <laughs> yeah, it's a, that's a huge no no. Don't do that. Well, let me put a disclaimer on that because you can do it as long as those Martians show up earlier in the story. Right. Yeah. You but know, like so out of nowhere, there, there, there's a reason no for them to be there. Yeah. Chekhov's gun, you know, the Martians <laughs> yeah. have to yeah. appear in the first act. The nice thing about being, uh, you know, the, the writer, the, the puppet master in the entire story is when you get that aha moment, if you're at page 380, when it comes to you, you can go back to page 43 and you can add a that's little right. snippet of something or other to, to make it play and out. Then and then you that's look really like what genius. you need to do. 
Everybody, you everybody will <laughs> rave about. Oh, I, I, that's so amazing. He just set that up at the very beginning. He's so he's such an incredible writer. It's like, yeah, I got to I got to the final page and thought I really need to work that in somewhere yep. and picked a place. <laughs> One of the things that I actually preach with a lot of my mentoring students is you know keep a list of stuff like that like as you go too. So if, if you you know if you do create some type of twist on page twenty three, have a working list of what that you know, that twist is or that open thread. Um, so by the time you close that book, you can look at that list. You can, you know, check off every thread that you had open, make sure everything has been wrapped up nice and neat. And, you know, if you see three items out of 10 that haven't been, you know, go back and find some way to, to close them up. You know, nothing is carved in stone until you hand it off to your editor. And, you know, even at this point you can, you know, you can change it even after that. Yeah. So if you write in Scrivener, there's all kinds of places you can put things like that, make little notes as you go, highlight stuff and drop in comments. It's a, you know, I'm, you can do that in Word and other tools as well. I mean, yeah, there, there's there, there's a lot of ways to do it. I, I've got a second monitor that's always next to me while I'm writing. And and one of the windows that I keep open the entire time is a scratch pad. And in that scratch pad, I've got a brief character description for everybody that's in the book. So, yeah. you know, I know what they, if I ever mention what somebody's eye color looks like, I drop it in there so that I don't yeah. screw that up later. Um, I, I put on any type of timeline information. So if I mention that this particular event happened at 9.37 p.m. on Thursday, um, you know, something specific like that i put that on the same document to make sure that i'm consistent because you know otherwise i may mention something and forget and you know have to go back to it later and when you're writing a, a thriller you know it's really important to have those types of things really nailed down yeah um you know so stuff like that i just i keep in front of me you know throughout the whole writing process one of the fun things about writing serials and having to release the chapters every week uh is especially the things that i write because they're funny and whimsical and whatnot i can toss in very off the wall things and just know that it's sitting there for me to grab and pick up and close a loop later. Um, and I don't really get the option to go back and edit it, at least in the serial form. Uh, so I've been having a lot of fun doing that uh, in the series I'm currently working on um, because I am semi pantsing it. Um, but that's been really fun experience of learning how to um, open these loops and then be able to retrace them and, and give those aha moments a little later. Yeah. Serials are a different beast, right? Like you can't, you're like, Oh, I wish I could go back and change this, but your readers have already read it. So you're stuck yep. with what you have. And then you have to do some pretty creative problem solving going forward. I love reading the classics because of that. Like a lot of people don't realize Charles Dickens was actually published in, in newspapers from, you know, a lot of his novels, you know, as, yeah. as a serialized fiction type deal. So he was in the same boat, you know, once it was in print, he was stuck and he had to figure out how to get out of it next, you know, next time around. That's one of the, uh, that's also one of the reasons why a lot of his books are really long because, you know, he knew that if he committed to a series and he didn't end it, he could keep it going and keep those paychecks coming in. Dead, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of those, <laughs> a lot of those books ended up a little bit longer and a little, little fuller than they probably would have been if he had just, you know, written them as a standalone. Yeah. So I want to know if you've ever written yourself as a character into a book. <laughs> you ever written your own name and like, hey, I'm this character? No. Anyone else? I, I have. I, you I, have? You've written yourself have, into a book? Yeah. I have not. I haven't written my own name. I mean, I, I definitely have had characters who were based on me. Right. Not 100%, but like the series that I'm writing right now, you know, is very heavy on what I went through. And yes, there's things in there that, you know, regarding the character that's not me but i think it's hard not to do it you'd really have to work hard not to there's always a piece of you in your writing always yeah, i am the stan lee of my entire literary universe <laughs> <laughs> so you show up in each piece <laughs> yeah there's some somewhere in there i'm in there somewhere you, you may not know my name reading the newspaper in the back kevin cameo <laughs> I, I solved a murder years back, but I guess it was 2009, 2010. Um, and I wrote a book about that. Um, so the, basically the, the book itself is me running around, mm. you know, more or less playing private eye. Um, so it was all first person, but you know, it's, it's autobiographical. It's almost like writing a, a diary or a journal or something at, at that point. Um, you know, and, and I've done that with many characters, just like, you know, Patrick and Kevin were talking about too. A lot of my first person narratives are, you know, basically it's me, yeah. you know, it's all coming out of my head that the, you know, the ideas are all me. It's just a different name. Okay. That, okay. I have to ask, cause I don't, I want to know if I'm the only one who is like this, but I have always felt like first person was cheating. And so when I've written books in first person, I'm like, ah, I'm not, I'm just this, I'm not really a writer at this point. Like I'm just cheating. 
Does anyone, do you ever feel like that? Nope. It it is to a certain, like I'm working with a lot of co-authors right now. So, you know, one of the things that I do, if if I don't feel that it's working, like if they try to tell a story in third person, you know, if I'm not feeling emotionally attached to the character, I'll make them circle back and write it as, as first person. Um, and there's been plenty of times, especially when I was first starting out, I would write something as first person. And then once I got the draft done, I would change it to third person just to get that, that voice done. Um, what I have to do now, and this is probably just a weird, it's either autistic or something else, you know, like, but I, when I write first person, I have to do it in italics. Mm. Um, and for, I get a particular voice when I write first person in italics versus when I write it the normal way. And then, you know, as soon as I'm done, I do a quick, you know, control this and just change it back. But for me to get that the words out of my head, I, I do it that way. But yeah, no, there's plenty of times when I'm working with a student or somebody that just isn't, you know, attaching to their character. The character's not coming to life quite right. I tell them to go back, rewrite it in first person, put yourself in that character's head, you know, as if it's you, you know, this is happening to you. Yeah. Write it down as if it's you, you know, and once you drill that home and they, they get it, it works. I think first person when you're writing, it works best when you dictate. For me, that's the way my brain works. Mm. I have not yet successfully done any dictation. It works really good for conversation. <laughs> mm. I can't do it for breathing reasons. <laughs> oh, oh you and your breathing. Oh, now we were, we're not going to talk about the gory details. So. Okay. We won't talk about gory surgery details on air. <laughs> hey, he, he brought up something else. Um, authors worry too much about how they're going to be received. So yeah. have you guys ever, like, have you ever written something down and changed it because you felt that it was going to be received wrong or, or cause a problem in some way? I have a history of writing things that piss off certain types of readers. And I, so I have over the years started to, to think like, is this going to, I don't mind that so much, but what I don't want is it being some excuse to rally everybody to, you know, tank my reviews or whatever. Uh, so I do kind of think about like you know is that is that going to be taken the wrong way is that going to become a thing and is it worth it (laughs) sometimes it's worth it is that the hill you want to die on i try to avoid it right that's the question like (laughs) i think there's some of that too but i think i've also gone the other way because i mean i grew up in a really strict household i wasn't allowed to watch mtv and do this and that and you know i had to break that oh, what is my mom going to think if she reads this kind yeah. of mentality? So I've had to break out of that. I remember um, the first thing I, had, I ever showed her, I think I'd written like a horror short and she read it and she said, whatever I did to you, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I've kind Poor of had mom. to break out of that, you know, if family and friends read this and they think, you know, I'm dark or I'm writing something sexual or whatever, like you just got to get over that and get that out of your head. At least it wasn't a romance novel, and she said that. Yeah, yeah no, it wasn't. It was for, I think it was, I don't know. I think if you stick with the reader, I think if you stick with the reader's expectation, okay, if you write like a gritty crime novel, they're going to expect there might be some gore. There might be some foul language. There might be some things that, you know, if you have a, um, a character who's a bad guy or bad gal, make them really bad. Make them offensive. Make them to where, you know, the reader isn't going to like them because they shouldn't be likable because they're bad people, you know? So I think it all depends on what the reader is going to expect. You know, obviously, if you're writing something that people think is rated G and then out of left field, you start doing some crazy stuff, you know, then, yeah, well, that's that's bad. You shouldn't be doing that. Mm -hmm. I know for me... um... I kind of started in the sense of like the fear of backlash because obviously I would prefer to write queer characters because I have more uh, like relation with that. But I originally wrote a female straight protagonist because I was like, clearly this is what the market wants, blah, blah, blah. Um, And it wasn't until I was like, you know what? Screw it. Like I'm going to write the way I want to write because I don't want to deal with having to, you know, dance around the edges just to make people happy. And that's yeah. when I feel like I was able to do exactly what I wanted to do and say what I wanted to say. So I think I'm kind of the reverse where I'm just like, meh, I don't care. Yeah. 
it's it's funny how that works because in in one I guess two books back, um, I was actually told the the opposite that like my editor came back to me and said, "Is there a character in here that we could make more relatable to the LGBTQ community? <laughs> you know, that basically take a straight character and turn them gay um, in order to to fit a square peg in a round hole." And my general thinking is, you know, if 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 it fits the story and it's necessary or it works, then it then it should be there, you know, by all yeah. means. But like, you should never just tweak a story to fit that. Um, I'm kind of going through that right now with my latest book too and a couple of you have read it but there's a rape scene in there um and you know that my agent in hollywood my literary agent they both push back on it they're like this this scene really needs to come out and you know the, the current environment it's it's not going to fly we're going to have a lot of problems with it but like their argument had nothing you know like i asked them if it works for the story and, and they're like that's not the point <laughs> you know it's <laughs> it's the environment that's the problem and like from my standpoint well if it works for the story it needs to stay because if we're telling the story i'm not trying to please you know, the, the current, you know, populace. Or the- and you're clearly, you're not advocating for it or anything. I mean, it's not. Right. It's. No. You no, actually, I mean, I, you dealt with the, just speaking as someone who's read that, I mean, you, you dealt with the, like the psychological scarring and implications of that. That became a big part of that character's story arc. Absolutely. Yeah. So taking it out would have made it a very different story. And honestly, like, I don't feel it would have been as good. In um, fact, it would have weakened I, the ending personally. I, because that character has some, some impact on the, on the ending of the book. This stuff never goes away. When Caller's Game was was sitting at my editor's desk, um, it was right around the same time the George Floyd stuff was happening. And I had a scene in there with a, a police's, uh, their body cams. Um, and I forget exactly what the wording was, but they wanted me to take it out because I was basically calling out, you know, the fact that this was recording on a, on a body cam. And like, you know, it was just it was big in the news. So they just they didn't want it in the book. And yeah. in the end, I left it. Nobody cared. You yeah. know, it's it, it doesn't matter if it, if it works for the story, then it, it really doesn't make a difference. So you can't let the current you know political environment, the current news cycle or whatever it might be influence what you're you're telling. Just tell the story. And that's really that's a right. pendulum when yeah. you think about it. It goes back and forth. Yeah, always. And, you know, right now in a lot of these things, the pendulum, I think, has, has flipped a little too far to the one side and it's it's kind of coming back and hopefully it'll eventually level off. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things that I thought was kind of neat that he was talking about was breaking the fourth wall. Do you guys do this? How often? How do you use it? I've d- I, I think I technically have done that in the first person books, uh, in a yeah. couple of the first person books. Not, but that's almost by default, I guess. That's almost what first person is. <laughs> but not like full on Deadpool, just talking to your audience. I never did that. Like wow. the I've done some winks at the audience, but I don't think I've ever just turned to the audience and said, "Hey, you reader, check this out." You know. I, no, I don't think. I guess. I guess technically, I've never done it. Then, yeah, neither have I. I'm going to back my answer up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um. So, JD, who do we have up next week? I think this is a friend of yours. We've got. Um. I'm going to totally butcher this name. Vaishnavi oh. Patel. Yeah, Vaishnavi. You were close. <laughs> uh, there you go. <laughs> I'm terrible. I, I can barely pronounce my own name. Um. But her first book was a, a, a New York Times bestseller. Her debut and debuted, I guess, at number 14 in May of last year. Um. And a lot of that was due to TikTok, right? Yep. So we're going to hear all about it. Awesome. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersinkpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersinkpodcast.com.